The Green Party are not only about the environment. We have policies on immigration, on NHS, employment, education, everything, you name it. But we look at it in the context of creating a sustainable future for society. Welcome back to Green Space. On this platform, we explore green ideas and look into the Green Party's policy proposals while getting personal and going deeper with the people who make up the movement. I'm your co-host, Sedan Alnar, and today I'm with Aziz Manat, parliamentary candidate for Dagenham and Raynham, chair of the Greens of Colour group, a former political advisor for the Green Party, and a member of the Consensus podcast, where eight amazing black and mixed race women talk about politics. So she is busy. <laughs> She's a busy person. Aziz, thank you so much for finding the time to come onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. I, I think I haven't even listed everything you do. No, <laughs> you didn't actually list my full-time job <laughs> and my part-time <laughs> and my part-time business. I couldn't get there. I know it is a bit of a mouthful after all. Even me, I, I forget something <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it took me like an hour to get your bio collect all that information i know it's quite a lot but i am i feel really blessed to be able to have all of the different positions and also be able to impact different things within society so yeah my full-time job is more related to housing and then my business is related to young people and inspiration essentially so yeah just to add those two to the list <laughs> to the mix <laughs> but i really appreciate it also, almost just a day until the election. <laughs> How are you feeling? Um, <laughs> well, first of all... <laughs> I think that should be a sound effect <laughs> that we use on this podcast. Probably. I'm sure many people empathize with that sort of sound. Just, just alone mm -hmm. can be like, hmm, okay, this election has been a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I know you've been out there campaigning and canvassing. Like, are you hanging in there or are you just powering through at this point? I have no choice but to hang in there <laughs> and power through at the same time. Um, yeah, it's it's been really interesting. I even had a hustings yesterday, um, last night after work. And that was really, really good mm -hmm. because I was able to not only speak alongside the different candidates there, but it was live streamed as well. Um, so mm -hmm. with live stream, you have to always make sure that, you know, you look alert. It's not just about the voice. It's not just about, um, what you're saying, but actually people need to look at you face to face. So I think, yeah, it was important for me to power through, not just hang in there for that, that particular yeah, experience. Yeah. I mean, podcasts are a luxury. Yeah. When you think about it that way, like I'm in my pajamas right now. <laughs> I mean, if I didn't say that, you I wouldn't have know. I had no clue. No clue. It's true. <laughs> Such a luxury. Yeah. And I mentioned the Consensus podcast. I do listen to it and I love it. Oh, thanks. Yes, 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 totally. I especially love the general insight you provide on the podcast. Like, you know, you can you can really see and get us to see the big picture. So I actually want to pick your mind about what your overall observations for this election are. Yeah, I guess unlike the Consensus podcast where we're bringing together eight black and mixed race women to talk about politics from different political parties and different political perspectives, mm -hmm. I think the election is a stark contrast to that. It feels very divisive. It feels very... Um, bitter, entrenched. Tribal, maybe. Yeah, tribal, but also also hopeless in a way hmm. because so many people feel as though they don't want the conservatives to come back in again that they're having to do all that they can to vote tactically 
and at the same time negating their values and what they want. Mm-hmm. And it was it was shocking to me because earlier today, the BBC released a article about the different political campaigns and what's been out there. And they said that 88 percent of the conservative campaign has been steeped in lies or mistruths. <laughs> and I just think to myself, wow, it's not even health and health. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd be fine with health and health. <laughs> it's, it's just Yes, that's why I feel so like a little bit hopeless. Like, how can so many lies have been told and yet no one has been brought to justice at this point about these lies or not mm. being accountable for the level of scrutiny or being scrutinised in the way that the public should be able to scrutinise them? So even yesterday at the Hustings I was at, the Conservative candidate didn't attend and hasn't been attending any sort of public forums. <laughs> and equally, he's the leader of the local council. So mm. it just, it really just makes me think like, how can we not have this level of accountability in what we're calling a general election? Like a slogan can't be it. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, it's quite shocking to be honest. Yeah. And how does it work? That's really interesting. You said that feeling a bit hopeless. How does it work when you're running yourself and, but you feel hopeless Mm. because like, you know, running as a politician, some of that is mobilizing communities and, you know, saying that there is hope. Mm. And that's why you should vote. And then you should vote for me. And I think your motto, which I loved was, if not me, who, if not now, when? Yeah. So how does this all work? Does it create a lot of like conflict? So internal conflict? Yeah. So the thing is, as much as I describe the election as to being a bit hopeless, as a green, I'm insanely optimistic. Mm. I'm constantly positive. Mm. Um, I'm always looking for a solution and a way of communicating a more prosperous future that we could have. Mm-hmm. And so as much as politics on the outside seems quite divisive and quite limited and hopeless to the electorate I'm describing, like because of what people have said to me, people are genuinely worried, feeling like they, you know, they're getting anxiety and really just dreading what the results will say on Friday. Yeah. For me personally, and I guess this is a testament to the many different things that I do, I have to be insanely optimistic and be positive about the future. Because if Greens don't, then we'll just sink and do nothing. Because we know that the task ahead of us is just so huge, if we let that overwhelm us, then we wouldn't, you know, be putting forward some really great and inspiring proposals for the electorate to be able to see what we could actually do. So, yeah, I'm an I'm an optimist. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I now see how it all works. So you've been in politics, like you are in politics, you've been in politics for a while. Mm. How did it all start for you? When and why did you get involved and why green politics? Yeah, so it's such a funny story. I started studying politics in sixth form and I only did it by accident. I wanted to study economy um, and economics um, and there was no space on the course so I had to go into politics. Oh no. And actually there, my mum described to me something yesterday which was, you know, that particular political class set me up for what I'm experiencing now. And essentially in that class, I was the only person of colour and the only woman in in the whole class. Mm-hmm. And I was never really phased by that. I was just like, okay, whatever, I'm here to learn. But whilst I was there, I was always agitated with what we were learning. And I was always agitated about the particular perspectives that some of my classmates had. And then mm. I um, ended up going to study international relations and politics. And again, I would say it was much by chance because I actually wanted to be an actress. Um, and a lot of people joke <laughs> joke now and say, you know, you know, politics today and actors are not too dissimilar. <laughs> Um, so yeah that's quite shady yeah it's quite shady but you know it's 
I, I see why they say that. I see why they say it in some <laughs> no, Totally. Um, yeah, so then I ended up going to study international relations and politics, just simply trying to make sure I had a degree that I was able to do something with um, practically and that sounded academic, mm-hmm. um, quote unquote. So that was just my tactic, <laughs> essentially. But whilst I was at university, I nearly dropped out. Wow. studying that course I wanted to switch to something else I didn't like it um and also I just didn't like the system mm-hmm. the more I learned about it the more I learned what we had within the UK the more and more I despised it so the more I hated the two-party mm. system the democratic voting system that we had the unelected chambers that we had like literally the list could go on um <laughs> so I was convinced that closer to the time I was about to finish uni I was thinking Do you know what I'm not even going to get involved in politics but it was only because I kept seeing on the news that gradual unemployment kept rising that I wanted to be mm. a sort of contradiction to that narrative I didn't want to be another person who wasn't able to get onto the career given the chosen degree that they studied so Mm. I really did it as a rebellious move um I saw a job for (laughs) the local green party group and I I I looked up a little bit about the green party I said okay you know um I feel like their ideals are quite sound they're not too controversial Mm -hmm. and so it wouldn't really ruin quote-unquote my political career if I did actually work for a political party and that being the green party Mm -hmm. and so I applied for the job I didn't get the job but I, yeah, I know, The story right? is getting dark, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't get the job at all. It was only one day a week. And then, but I, I emailed the lady, the recruiter, and I said, you know, could you tell me why I didn't get it? And she was just so taken aback by my approach that she decided to sit and have coffee with me, give me some ideas about how I could get mm. into politics in a different route that wasn't party political because my university didn't actually tell us at the time different things that we could do with the degree. Um, and then she suggested that, why don't I just come down and volunteer for the day in Leamington Spa? Mm-hmm. So I was, I'm in an iron about it. Remember, I'm a student at this point and yeah. deciding to use my weekend to go to a town that I don't know <laughs> to go volunteering for the local Green Party group didn't sound quite attractive at first, right? <laughs> but then I thought <laughs> it wouldn't what? make you the coolest in your class. Not really. But I was like, what's <laughs> the worst that could happen, right? They're not going to do anything crazy. So I decided yeah. to go down there and, um, we were canvassing. Mm-hmm. I'd been studying politics for seven years at this point, And I, for the first time, was learning what canvassing was. I was seeing a local Green Party councillor knock on doors more than 12 months before an election, asking local residents what they cared about in their local area. And just that yeah. image alone, I was like, I am hooked. Like, I really <laughs> respect this man. I've never seen a local councillor in my area in London. This is amazing. Wow. And then cut a long story short um I ended up getting the job that I applied for and so I ended up working <laughs> for the Warwick and Leamington Green Party group for a year on their campaign their 2015 campaign mm-hmm. and then I've been hooked ever since yeah so it's um it's been an interesting journey thus far and I remember when I first started with the Greens and I accepted the job I remember calling my mum and said I'm definitely going to stay apolitical because you know I think it's really really important that I stay neutral and within two months I was signed up to the Green Party within mm-hmm. four months. I was elected to be the parliamentary candidate in Warwick and Leamington. <laughs> wow. And yeah, I was just having a really great time. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's such a relatable story in terms of what you went through um, that scenario as a young person at uni. I mean, of course, 
that scenario, the struggle you face is different for everyone, mm. you know, depending on many different factors. But did those reasons why you got into politics and what you went through when you were a student shape what you're campaigning on today as an MP candidate? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, yes, partly the mm -hmm. my experience as a young person and as a student, um, but also whilst I was working with the Green Party in 2015, I was also working for the Citizens Advice Bureau. Mm. And I think that largely shaped my um, frustration towards the system even more and looked at social policy and social injustice. And that really hit home to me. So my role within the Citizens Advice Bureau was to provide advice to mm -hmm. and support for people who had just been given their new property. And the Housing mm -hmm. Association wanted to make sure that they could secure their tenancy and stay in their tenancy for a long time. And these people were particularly vulnerable because they had low incomes. And oftentimes when I was doing financial assessments with them, they had to choose between heating or eating. Um, wow. I know that slogan has been banded around in the media and with politicians mm -hmm. using it, but that was my daily reality. Like I had to give people care packages, which had pots, pans, a light bulb, um, a rug on the floor, because oftentimes when people move into a new property, the whole house is stripped, regardless of whether, you know, there was good carpet in there, it gets stripped because the housing association doesn't want to get any um be liable for any mm -hmm. sort of goods that were left in there so i'd be applying and paying for um get giving people sorry grants um so that they could furnish their homes and so i saw really front and center what these people had to deal with on a day-to-day basis and that just really angered me that the system wasn't different and so i think it was partly what i experienced as a student and partly just trying to be rebellious to the system but also that lived experience touched me quite a lot. I remember being, I think I was 20 at the time, sitting opposite from um, a mother and her children. And she was, you know, in front of me seeking this advice. And I just thought to myself, how mm. unqualified am I who hadn't really had a lot of life experience to be here sitting and telling and speaking to this, this woman about what she should do with her finances or how she can keep her home. And I remember speaking to my volunteer manager and she was saying to me, look, Aziz, you are a young person but that doesn't make you an amateur and when I heard that from her she was talking about the context of like I'm a volunteer and so much I'm learning from this process but that doesn't mean to say that actually I can't give good advice to adults as well and because she told me that I stuck with it and I've used it as like the momentum and fuel constantly throughout everything I do like things that challenge me even stand as a political candidate I really thought to myself you know I'm a young person, but that doesn't make me an amateur. I'm still passionate about so many different things. And so I think that perspective is also really, really important when you're pursuing politics, because actually a lot of people will make you try and feel as though, you know, you need to be a certain age or you need to be from a particular class or um, you need to be from represent a particular type of gender, etc. But actually, as a young person, we have so much more and diversity and things to give. Mm -hmm. And so... When I've stood or when I've been a, bit, been a part of politics, I've used that as like a cornerstone of my like motivation almost just to keep going. Don't worry about it. Like keep going. Like you can speak from a level of authority. That's so empowering. That's amazing. Yeah. And then I've been in politics since. So the year after being a campaign manager for the Greens in Warwick and Leamington. So we started off with one councillor and by the end of, mm -hmm. by the time I was leaving, we had three, which was great. So we had one person in the county council, one in the district and one in the town. 
and then they've grown even bigger since then so that's been that was been really really good to be a part of that story and that journey for them yeah but then I came back to London and and this is the thing about like even education partly as well like Mm -hmm. I studied politics at this point for seven years and also worked in politics for one year and didn't realize what the mayor of London did (laughs) and what city hall did and what the Greater London Authority did. I was like, what is this? So I went down to um, the London Assembly to shadow um, Baroness Jenny Jones, who was an assembly member at the time, mm-hmm. um, whilst I was still working with the Green Party up in Warwick. And then she was just showing me and I was just seeing what her day-to-day life was like. And I just couldn't believe that I didn't really understand that there were 25 other politicians who also were responsible for London, <laughs> in addition to the mayor. And there was this whole building that was orchestrated to like facilitate this democratic process. And I'm a born and bred Londoner and had no clue that it existed and also studied it for seven years. I just felt so lied to. I was like, where has this building been this whole time? (laughs) So yeah, that's kind of like how I ended up transitioning into the London Assembly. But it just goes to show, and this is what I say to people all the time, it just goes to show like people don't know everything about politics. There's so much to know. So never feel as though whatever knowledge you have is not enough to get involved in a discussion or to be passionate about a particular issue because, yeah, I had no clue Mm-mm-mm. that I'd end up working in the Greater London Authority for like four years, <laughs> influencing policy and the mayor, etc. But that, that also tells us a lot about the state of the education in the UK because mm. you studied for years and years and that's a vital part of uh, London politics. You didn't have an idea the current state of education in the UK and how it interacts with what else is going wrong in society is is like a full-on crisis right now. Yeah. That whole scenario we talked about, at first you're a kid, study, 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 get ready for exams, get constantly tested. It's just so much pressure. And then you got into uni. Yeah. No, you got to pay them tuition fees now. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and it's a commodity. Like, it's not even a basic right. Yeah. You know, these children are like children-shaped pieces ready to be fit into the gaps in the workplace. You know, like something went massively wrong in the way we think about our education. Mm. I remember reading an article on, on The Guardian. I think it was last year, and of course, for this interview, I pulled it up again from the the dark hole, also known as Google. <laughs> and it's it's written by an anonymous academic from the U.S. And the title said, "I thought U.S. universities were driven by profit until I moved to the U.K." Wow. Yeah, it it talks about how they expected a culture shock when they crossed the Atlantic, not anticipating how corporatized British universities are. And I think that just goes for every level education in the UK. So so what do you think like the impact of this profit-driven system is where you see kids are like on like a production line mm. getting manufactured left and right all day every day? And how can we rethink about this and re recraft the education system in the UK? <laughs> a bit of a big question, but... Yeah, so it's huge. And I wish we were talking about it a little bit more in this election as well, because mm-hmm. actually what we're doing to our young people is, is going to be damaging for generations if we don't, try to, um, we don't try to fix it. Because as you mentioned, young people are just put on a factory 
belt and just churned out and just told that they need to get X amount of grades and um, achieve this thing. If they don't achieve it, then they're not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're seeing, um, especially from my work with the business, actually, um, I started that. Wow. Uh, so shortly after I came out of uni and whilst I was working in, in City Hall, mm-hmm. I was so frustrated by the education system and the lack of information it gave us to help us navigate through life. I felt as though I needed to do something. So essentially what I mean by it doesn't give you what you need in life is actually confidence skills. Like we're not training young people to know how to be confident. We're not training young people to know how to build their self-esteem. We're not training young people to be resilient. We're not training young people to understand what is networking and how should you best communicate in the professional world. We're not even training young people to have a bigger vision for themselves. We're training them to think for a particular limited time to work to that particular goal without the long term vision in mind and the long term goal in mind. And that is so backwards to the way in which business works, in the way in which politics works, Mm -hmm. because essentially what you're trying to do is actually limit the person's perspective only a few hundred yards in front of them. So, of course, every single time they get to a new checkpoint, a checkpoint being secondary school, year yeah. 10, the test. university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you have no you've not even thought about what you want to achieve in life. You haven't even thought about, you know, what just makes you happy. And so the business that I run is called Two to Three Degrees. We we do personal development sessions for young people across the country to help them unearth those questions that make them them. Mm. that make them realize why they're special, to make them realize what their purpose is, what their gifts are in life, so that they can be the best person that they can be and not feel inadequate if they come short against the system. Because as as I described in my own story, mm-hmm. if I didn't have the core principles of confidence and wanting to stretch outside of my comfort zone and seeking new opportunities, then I wouldn't be where I am today. And that is something that can be taught. It's not something that any one person is born with. And so... But that's not taught in the current system. And that's because of the commoditization of the education system, because they're Mm -hmm. so focused on the bottom line and savings and turning into academies to be like more businesses and that we're forgetting the bigger picture. Like the bigger picture is to raise young people to be the best that they can be and contribute to society. Mm -hmm. I think there is something else that's really off about how education is provided and, you know, that field is operated in the UK. Mm. One of the books that are really important to me, one, because it's, it's an amazing book, but also because I met two of my best friends who are like sisters to me through this book club I went to to discuss this book. And it's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The Bible. Yes. (laughs) By Renietta Lodge. The first chapter is called Histories. And it starts with her saying, quote, It wasn't until my second year of university that I started to think about Black British history. End of quote. And then she says she started thinking about this when she took a course on the on the transatlantic slave trade. Okay. And she didn't know what to expect from this class because she only ever encountered Black history through American-centric educational displays and lesson plans in primary and secondary school, which were, of course, really focused on American civil rights movement, Martin Luther King. 
but this made her feel like all of this was a million miles away from her and her life as a young black girl growing up in North London. And it, it makes you think, when is the UK gonna gonna stop this collective intentional forgetting and erasing and finally come to terms with what's been done and try to make it right, at least for the future generations by implementing a decolonized curriculum in schools. Exactly. When? <laughs> the question you, you just hit on the head is like, when are they going to do this? Mm -hmm. Because I don't know how long they can continue to act as if we never existed in this country from the 1500s. Like, mm. the history books are there and they only want to give us a particular version of our history, which, of course, has a knock-on effect on how we view ourselves and what our impact is within the country and where our contribution is within the country. Because if you feel like your contribution may have only come from when the Windrush generation came in, mm. then you can feel as though, actually, you know, my family have ties back in a different country. And whilst that might be true, we do need to recognise that there's been a lot of black people throughout history and people of colour, actually, who have been in the UK and contributed massively to the infrastructure that we have today. And mm -hmm. without doing that, without telling that story, you're not allowing people to really even vision what they can achieve for themselves being here. Because it's almost as if you're, you're living in somebody else's home. That's how sometimes it feels, despite mm. being second generation British myself. Like it sometimes feels as though should I be investing and putting a lot of hard work in the UK so that I can reap the benefits later? Or should I actually be, quote unquote, going back to Jamaica or St. Lucia or somewhere in West Africa to be able to live a different type of life? Because they make it seem so alienating mm. that although you're born here, you're not, you don't really feel like you're from here. They still manage to be territorial, I guess, even though you're sharing the same territory. Yeah, it's like, it's really sad. It's really mm -hmm. sad because there's so much more we could do together as homogenized communities, just like living and coexisting in a better world and in a better society for the UK. We could do so much more if people were able to fulfill their potential, but also not feel as though there's barriers to even doing so. And unfortunately, we still live in a situation where there are so many barriers for so many people of color and it's, it's really disgraceful. Mm -hmm. And it's just shocking, actually, how... The, the British government have not really addressed this. Like, they really mm -hmm. haven't addressed the reparations that they should be giving back to some of the communities. They haven't addressed the stolen artifacts and um, jewels that are in, are in so many different museums that we have on display that we're gawking at, as, all, as if to say, like, this is British triumphant, but actually it's just it's stolen goods. <laughs> like, it's actually just stolen goods. Like, you have stolen goods on display. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Like, how are we not addressing this? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think there's lots more that um, that we can do, like our communities can do. Um, and hence why I, I wanted to become chair of the Greens of Colour group. Like, today we launched our manifesto, or it's not a manifesto, sorry, it's our commitment document. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it makes clear that the Green Party are not going to tolerate this anymore. People who believe in the Green Values and also our people of colour, can speak from different points. We can talk about green values and progressing society, but we can also speak from the point of decolonising our society 
um Mm -hmm. and and talking the truth like and taking down all these barriers and elements of racism and and actually just calling it out like we have a whole section on racism Mm -hmm. um and we even talk about microaggressions because it's important like this is our lived experience and this is our lived reality and we need to sort of like change society to to see us if any of these ideas are resonating with you even if at some point you went yeah that makes sense then you know what to do Talk to people about these ideas. Go out and help green candidates campaigning on the ground. And most importantly, be a part of the movement. Become a member. Join the Green Party. www.join.greenparty.org.uk Get on it. Exactly. And also, it's not realistic to expect to, you know, for everyone to stop being ignorant about this when this is not even in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. This is not just so that, you know, you'll get to hear about your story, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah, of course. But it's also so that the others will learn about mm-hmm. what happened so that you don't have to deal with that ignorance. Exactly. It's, you know, it's so that that one douchebag, when they're a kid, they'll get to hear about what happened and maybe understand injustice and racism are still happening today still to this day, all day, every day, it's still happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe so that you, you won't hear him saying, oh, yeah, but colonialism, and the slave trade happened like centuries ago. We're all equal now. There's no racism. Cool. You know, you, as soon as you said that, you reminded me of a conversation I had not too long ago where someone essentially said to me, you know, we're all equal now. And <laughs> I just, I just squinted. Like, I'm squinting right now. Sorry, you can't see me. It's a podcast, but... <laughs> I was just squinting like what are you on about and do you know what it's not just to to talk about the past and talk about the the negative things that we've we've had to experience we're talking about the past because our ancestors and our generations who have been here and lived in different countries have been phenomenal they have been pioneers in science in technology in history Mm -hmm. in medicine in like so many different things that is so important for younger generations from across the spectrum, from different ethnicities, to actually see these people as inspirations and role models. Like, we're not just saying, please decolonize the, the curriculum so that we can continue talking about just the slave trade and American mm-hmm. civil rights. We're talking about it so we can actually hold up some heroes and some very esteemed people so we can learn from them, so that we can understand actually we're not starting from the bottom. We're not starting from a place of, of lacking. Hmm. We're starting from a place of power. We're starting from a place of legacy that our ancestors have been able to provide for us. And I think when you talk from those perspectives, it's so much stronger. It's so much more empowering. It's so much more enriching. And and when you learn that stuff, you, it's almost as if you feel like nothing that you're experiencing can stop you. Hmm. It can't hold you back because your purpose yeah. is so much bigger than currently what we're what we're experiencing and so that's why it's important to tell our stories it's not just to talk about slavery it's not just to tell the truth but Mm -hmm. it's to tell the truth to do something great for the future as well and so that the story is complete as well Mm. the story is like we're we're getting to know half of the story well not even half like like a smidgen yeah Yeah, it's true yeah (laughs) absolutely and you know you just said we're all equal now in late 2017, The Independent revealed that black students seeking a place at university are 21 times more likely 
to have their applications investigated for suspected false or missing information than their white counterparts. What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why these things shock me, but for goodness sake. (laughs) I know, but when you hear the number, like you know that that's the case, but when you hear the number, I'll just even make the story worse. There were over 42,000 Black applicants. So that means one in every 102 applications was investigated. But then there were over 388,000 white applicants. And that means one in every 2,146 applications triggered further interrogation. Just for the application to go into university? Yeah, university applications. How lovely. (laughs) This is ridiculous. Yeah. And again, this stat also is from 2017. 13 Oxford University colleges fail to make a single offer to Black A-level applicants over a six-year period. Mm. Not even just one year. Wow. For six years, 13 Oxford University colleges, like, how are you equal? How are you equal? But then hear people on mainstream media talking about this in, in a way like, yeah, our educational institutions need to be more inclusive and welcoming for, you know, BAME, Black, Asian, minority ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. First of all, how dare you? Who are you to welcome people <laughs> into something that's already theirs? Exactly. But also, how can we move the mainstream debate on this from <laughs> that basic level that doesn't address the root causes of inequalities to a conversation on institutional and systemic racism with a real vision, ambition, and drive? Mm. That's such a powerful question because you're actually thinking about, and we're trying to like think about what the solutions are to where we are now. And I think even just that framing is, mm-hmm. is so illuminating. We need more people to even ask that question. Mm. When I was thinking about our current system and where we are, I was thinking about how did other generations push past barriers that were set or ways in which we couldn't, we struggled to progress, right? And I was thinking about, mm-hmm. unfortunately, the allyship. And I, and I say unfortunately, partly because we have to recognize at some point our movement, it can be great. And people who are influencers can do great things as well in order to shape our culture, just like what Stormzy has been able to do in Cambridge. But it mm-hmm. also... Unfortunately, because people of color don't always hold the keys to these institutions and these narratives, actually, like even if we think about the media, like who owns the media? Yeah. It it, it falls upon a, a mixture of people of color and also allies. So I was thinking mm-hmm. that, you know, as a society, we can't actually move and do anything if we don't have allyship. So even when we think about gender equality and LGBT rights, a lot of that agenda has been pushed because they've had the allyship of the other mm-hmm. in their corner also supporting them. And unfortunately, what we haven't seen throughout the years of talking about racism and talking about change within the UK, we actually haven't seen that strong allyship from white people in, in, in positions of power. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if, like, Black people and people of colour are having to constantly push and shout about the same thing. And oftentimes it's, it feels yeah. as though it's, it's falling on deaf ears or we're making small and incremental changes. But actually, it's important that those people recognise the, 
privilege and positions they're in and also outstretches not only to people of their kind but others and one of the things that worked really well was when I was working with um both with Sean Berry, Jenny Jones and Caroline Russell is they gave me mm-hmm. opportunity ample opportunity to talk about my experience and what I believe the the people of color within London were facing and the challenges that they were facing and the ways in which we needed to change and maneuver policy and they are the elected politicians so by having mm-hmm. my voice in their office and being able to talk to them about certain things we were able to make some really great policy changes that affect the GLA and also has impact on the wider London economy and society as well so one of the things was we got the mayor to um, initiate name blind recruitment within the GLA and mm-hmm. I personally remember that story not because I, I I went through anything where I felt like I was discriminated against within this, my CV but my old colleague did um, and his name is Mohammed. he uploaded his CV um, with his name and then another one with a different name like a more European or British sounding name and he actually got called yeah. for in for an interview despite oh. putting both applications through and it's just like this is a clear example wow. as to how we're constantly being just not allowed into the places that we're supposed to be in because I was able to hear his story and then communicate that to Sean we were able to lobby the gov- um, lobby the mayor to do something different and so that's why I say you know we mm-hmm. have we need to have that allyship within people who don't look like us and not from our communities but just listening to us and pushing our narrative forward. Mm -hmm. I think some of that is coming from white people. Sometimes they say, I'm I'm not racist. I've 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 never been one. So I'm just not gonna do the work. I mean even me as a woman of color, first of all, I have to deal with internalized racism. Like internalized it's kind of similar to internalized homophobia. I don't have the luxury to say, oh no, I don't want to put in the work and do any deconstructing. I have to do that to love myself in a society that keeps discriminating against me because of my, you know, so-called background. And because race is, is such a social and political construct, by definition, it offers black people and people of color a very limited sense of self. And then, of course, within the people of color communities, there is anti-blackness. You know, the the two best friends I mentioned, Sarah and Sarah, um, they do a podcast called Vocal About It, where they celebrate women of color in Europe and they break it down and, and have real talks about their lives as black and brown women in Europe. And their 14th episode is about this, anti-blackness among people of color. So again... I'll, I'm going to do the work. But where are the white folks? If I had these kinds of thoughts that I still work on, no white person can tell me, no white person that grew up in this world can tell me they don't have to do the work because they've never been an oppressor or because they're leftists or whatever. That's just not how it works. If we can start there, then we can have a conversation. Yes. As I said before, raising that awareness and just ensuring that wherever you're making decisions from, you're coming from a place of compassion, love and focus and not from, mm-hmm. oh, because that person looks like me, I feel like I can relate to them. I'd be able to go to the pub with them and have a good time and have banter. Like, that's not helpful. And especially when that might not be the culture for some of these people and some of these communities. Yeah. In that book, I mentioned why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. The author says, and I think this is a quote, looking at our history shows racism does not erupt from nothing. Rather, it's in the very core of how the state is set up. 
it's not external, end of quote. And I think the best example of that is the one and only home office. (laughs) One scandal after another, the office just outdoes itself in the worst way possible. You know, every single time it just doesn't fail to prove that it's one racist institution. Um, Would you like to maybe explain what's happening with the home office and the, the whole Windrush scandal? To put everything into perspective, and by that I mean my rant um, about the Home Office into perspective. Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the Home Office is a government department that is supposed to be there to support the establishment of the people. For example, they work on a range of things, right? But the thing that I know that you're you're really getting us to delve into now mm-hmm. is the way in which they've treated the Windrush generation. Mm-hmm. It's just disgusting. Like, I'm actually speechless that this is a thing that has happened in our recent history. So essentially what happened was the Home Office had continued on various different measures, which we call the hostile environment. Mm -hmm. They were seeking to remove people of colour from um, various different spaces, not only from this country, but also from their home, from their places of work, etc. Because they were pushing an agenda which essentially a racist agenda that wanted Britain to not have as much diversity as it has now, in short. And so a result of that was, one, keeping people in detention centres, putting them on special chartered flights to countries like Jamaica, and also issuing people who may not have had their whole documentation um, of their right to be here because of the time in which they came, they tried to send them back, essentially. And even for families who did have evidence of them being born here or being or coming over to this country from a really, really young age and having so much roots invested in the UK, they still wanted to send them back. And sometimes you're sending, you're suggesting to send people back to countries that they don't know, they're not familiar with anymore, they don't really identify as their community, a lot of their family may be in this country. And essentially what happened was, and, the, and I'm really proud of the Greens, um, actually, because before the Windrush scandal became a scandal, became what it was known for, we've constantly been fighting against the Home Office's agenda of the hostile environment mm-hmm. because we saw we saw that this was a racist agenda. We saw that this was something to disrupt families and disrupt communities for the one gain, I guess, of just being racist like I don't know how to put it in any other words like the whole thing was just like get people out or get go back to your own country like those slogans that um, people of color have heard growing up in this country in more recent years and like the last century those things are not a joke like as much as they don't they may not be said face to face like the government is actively moving on an agenda to get people out of this country and that's what we saw in a Windrush scandal and why it became such a huge scandal is because the Caribbean community that are known as the Windrush, they were sent letters, they were sent propaganda on uh, in newspapers and over the radio to say, come to Britain, come to Britain, you know, it's so beautiful, it's so amazing, come and invest your life here and actually help us rebuild after the war. Mm-hmm. And so thousands of people came in their droves, left their families, left their communities that they once knew to come and build, rebuild the motherland, which is how the Commonwealth countries consider Britain Mm -hmm. and you know less than 50 years later 
there was a clear agenda to send people back to those countries. It's kind of like, we're done with you. We don't need you anymore. Why are you even here? Bye. Go back. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's just atrocious. And I think the reason why people were so outraged by it is because a lot of communities have seen the impact that the Windrush generation had, particularly on the NHS, mm. particularly on the education system as well. And they've done a lot for this community and helped rebuild it. And actually even housing, like house building was big after the war. And that was also in part due to the hands of many black people and people of color generally. So it's like to see all of this being rebuilt and then saying like, you know, this doesn't belong to you anymore. Like, again, the same point of like removing and erasing history and trying to erase like the legacy that people had. I think that's why people across the spectrum across ethnicities were outraged by it and it, i guess it it draws back on the fact as to why this is so important that we do have allies because it wasn't just the black community although the greens in bristol did amazing amazing to like raise a huge petition mm -hmm. and get more than twenty thousand signatures i think it was green councillor cleo lake yes led that process i think it was hashtag jamnesty yeah. petition yeah mm -hmm. in 2000 in april 2018 and a lot of people don't even know that the Greens were the ones who spoke about this in its early inception because Labour was able to easily hijack it because they've got more publicity and blah, 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 blah. Classic. Literally classic. Everyday occurrence. It's so annoying, though. It's so <laughs> annoying. Like, this is a Green issue. Like, to be honest, it's not a Green issue. It's a mm -hmm. people issue. Yeah. Like, we needed it to change, but it would have been great if we were credited and made aware and people were made aware of where this actually started from because mm -hmm. you know it's not easy to do things like this given the fact that the home office is trying to erase our history in some ways like political parties that try to hijack green ideas is another form of them exercising their oppressive nature mm -hmm. because you know it was it, it's not hard for David Lammy to um, have said you know thanks to green councillor Cleo Lake for you know raising this to the profile it was not hard for him to have actually just made uh, that statement, but because he wanted so much of the power and the glory himself to to show that Labour are speaking up on this issue, exactly, it wasn't a cross-party thing. Yeah, absolutely. And people of color, especially black people, don't get credit enough anyway. So this was just mm -hmm. another one of those examples. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. That that was just kind of the beginning of what we need to be doing, or uh, just a part of what we need to be doing when it comes to this. What are the next steps? Because I know that you have this in the in the commitment document. So we have released our commitment document, and essentially, our aim is to really amplify Greens of Color voices, not only within uh, the Green Party, but actually outside as well. So people can, across the spectrum, from across the country, can recognize how much we speak up for different communities across the UK. So we're going to do that in a range of different and exciting um, policies and sort of campaigns as well. But we really just want to amplify our voice because it's important that we people recognize what we're about, but also recognize what we stand for as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what do you think a racist home office says about that government? What does it say? When, when a government has a racist home office that does these things and mm. what does it say about where politics in that country is going it just goes to say that the society is broken it's mm. a sham and it actually is a reflection of how the structures are 
So the Home Office is not the only institution that is racist within our governing mm-hmm. society. We actually also have the police force, we have the education system, and we also have even the health system that has see- is seeing so many people of colour dying because medical professionals don't actually listen to what they say are their concerns or their problems. Yeah. They think that we're probably putting it on, etc. So it is a reflection, a window into how bad things are. And so that's why the Greens are really clear that we actually want to get rid of the Home Office. We don't want to rebrand it um, Mm -hmm. and cover it up for what it really is. We just want to get rid of it completely, create a different, completely different institution. So like we will have a Ministry of Interior, which will oversee domestic security and just make sure that people have their full human rights. And it will ensure that diverse communities across the UK are listened to and are spoken for and are supported in the ways that they need to. Mm -hmm. We also want to have a ministry of sanctuary, which will basically abolish income requirements for people wishing to come to the UK to join a loved one. So sanctuary, when you think of a sanctuary, you're thinking of a place of um, peace and refuge and relaxation, etc. And so Mm. we want to continue to be a country that welcomes different people to UK because the UK is so great because of its diversity Um, and so we that's what we would have like as another ministry in a sense as well and those two things are really important because you're thinking about the person yeah you're thinking about the person and how they live their life within society and within the UK today so yeah these two things are really really important to think about how people live and exist within society rather than just thinking about getting them out essentially and that's kind of what the home office has been focused on doing with pushing their hostile environment agenda and also Mm -hmm. we want to make a wind rush day like a bank holiday um, where we get to celebrate the contribution that migration um, and people from across the country across the world sorry have had in society as well so mm-hmm. that's one of the things that the greens of color really want to push and advocate for yeah yeah i think since we started talking the overarching theme has been politics is painfully white yep you know all the decisions that got us to where we are today even just you know when it comes to the topics we covered education the way the government was set up like you said it's it's clearly very white. Councillors, candidates, MPs, disproportionately white. And I think in your constituency as well, right, where you're running right now, you're the only person of color and also the only woman running, I think. Yep, that is true. <laughs> that is very true. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about allyship, all the people listening to this, whether they're the ones holding the privilege the ones with the privilege and what they need to do something about this. And also, I'm sure we'll also have people, young women of color as well, listening to this who look up to you, you know, like I do. So I think that's why we, it's important to ask the question, how can we as people of color reclaim the political arena? I think it's really tricky. But one of the first things is Mm -hmm. people of color need to continue to empower themselves continue to build their uh, confidence up and self-esteem as well to ensure that they recognize that they have a true stake in the society like that's really really important so there's self-agency that has to happen and by doing that and by improving your confidence you can do Mm. things like reading certain books being around certain people but also listening to 
motivational and inspiring videos and that's something that I did and I constantly do to try and arm myself with the confidence that I need to be able to go out into society and be a voice for change and be someone who's different Mm -hmm. so another thing that I think is really important is um, the political system itself and in our Greens of Colour commitment document there's many things that are entrenched within the system that make it quite difficult for people of colour to want to enter politics. So one is the abuse that women of colour face. It's 15% more than their white counterparts. So we need to end abuse that women face generally within the political sphere. Mm-hmm. Second of all, um, even if we start at the grassroots, like to become a counsellor, a counsellor's role is so close to the community and it's so important. But even the councillor salaries that they have mm-hmm. and the times in which they meet are not supportive of people from diverse communities seeing, seeing it as an attractive um, vocation to get into because their salaries are so low, one, and two, because mm-hmm. there's so many other commitments that you need to do. So I'm not saying that we should you know, make allowances, but I do think that we need to have a review in terms of how councillor salaries work, how councillors operate, and so that we can think about actually, are are our current systems a barrier to people of Mm colour who want to get involved? Because it is, it clearly is. There's there's tens of thousands of councillors and only a handful Mm -hmm. of them or a small percentage of them are people of colour and also young people as well. So we really do need to do more in opening up those Mm -hmm. spaces. And I think another thing that we could do to open up those spaces is job sharing so in other public bodies Mm. as a civil servant you can share your job essentially with someone else and that really supports people with caring responsibilities or those with disabilities or other accessibility needs that need to be catered for and if we actually think more creatively about our political system I would genuinely know that there will be a shift in the way in which in the different types of people who get involved in politics but it's a two-pronged issue um, and unless we fix politics generally and in those specific institutions and areas we can't just keep asking people of color to be confident and be bold and keep going out there because it's not always easy like for me I'm I'm blessed that I have the confidence to want to do it and I, I I hope that by me standing I'm encouraging others to stand but I also talk about the realities of what you could face as a person of colour coming into this arena. And if you don't have thick skin, then it might be a little bit tricky um, for you to navigate. And I don't think that we should have to put up with that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is important that the system itself changes as well. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at these ideas, your work, the Greens of Colour's work, this is really intersectionality coming to life. You know, so long how oppressions are interlinked and the fact that many people do stand on those links and intersections have been overlooked Mm -hmm. because we were simply governed by people that didn't stand on any of those intersections of oppressions. Instead, they, they actually had a lot of intersections of privileges. And this is the idea green politics is founded on seeing how everything is interlinked you know, you can't have environmental justice exactly. without social justice. You can't have any of those things without racial justice. And this is also what makes green politics the politics of, of the future, because societies can't go on like that. Mm. And also we're done with voting for people that 
mm-hmm. stand on intersections of privileges. And I think this is why the other parties are having such a hard time trying to stay relevant because they're not offering that perspective. That's not where they're coming from. In they've they've mm-hmm. never done that. They've never been about that. So, and I think that's why I asked you that question. It's time to reclaim. It's time to take over. And this is why what you're doing is just very, very, very much appreciated. Thank you for being involved. Thank you for standing. Power to you and your political fight <laughs> in Dagenham and Raynham. And thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so, so, so much for having me. I think this has been an amazing chat. I've just, lo- I've just loved it. Um, so yeah, thank you <laughs> thank so much. You. I hope people listening really enjoy it as much as we have. Yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Green Space. And watch out for more episodes coming your way. But in the meantime, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Tell your friends and family to subscribe too. Tweet about it. Post it on Facebook for that uncle and auntie. Basically, get the word out.